Today's episode of Beyond the Mask is presented by the insurance specialists at BrightThink Wealth Strategies. Find the disability insurance coverage that fits you best right now. Email Robert Smith at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. The show is also made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. Get a free consultation today to be guided through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Just visit crnafinancialplanning.com. We'd also like to thank Helping Hands and OSA EMR for their support of the show. And don't forget, listening to our podcast can earn you Class B credits. For more information on how you can submit them, check out the CE Credit tab on our website, beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Hello, everyone, and thank you for joining us for our next podcast. I'm Sass Elisha. And I'm Jeremy Heiner. And we are excited to bring you Beyond the Mask Clinical Edition with Jeremy and Sass. So as we've mentioned before, Sass and I are educators. We love educating SRNAs and CRNAs, and that's why we're doing this podcast. Now, we also realize that your time is valuable. You got to get in the OR. So we want to talk about things that are pertinent to what you're doing in the OR in terms of case management, pharmacology, critical events that you may experience. And we want also want to provide you with up-to-date topics and knowledge in a power-packed, concise episode. So take some deep breaths and pre-oxygenate yourself. It's go time. It's go time. We know CRNAs are busy with limited time. That's why we want to bring you clinical updates and reviews that are pertinent to your anesthesia practice. This is Beyond the Mask with Jeremy and Sass, Clinical Edition. Together, Jeremy and Sass have a combined 40 years of teaching anesthesia students and CRNAs. They speak nationally and at state associations and also continue to practice anesthesia in the operating room. Jeremy and Sass author and edit several anesthesia textbooks including Nurse Anesthesia, the core anesthesia textbook used in the CRNA profession. Okay, so now in this episode, we are going to continue discussing our crisis checklists. And we've already discussed two checklists that deal with distributive shock, both anaphylactic shock and neurogenic shock. Now let's round that off with the third type of distributive shock, and we're going to talk today about septic shock. Now, speaking of crisis checklists, we have developed some crisis checklists that we want to make available to you. You can find them at beyondthemasspodcast.com. This is a series of 20 crisis checklists that provides the most up-to-date information regarding the management of these crises. You can download them at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. All right, so let's start out with a case presentation. So we have a 48-year-old male post-exploratory lap for a gunshot wound to the abdomen that occurred two days ago. Patient is coming back to the OR for re-exploration. He has um, extreme abdominal tenderness and also distension. His vital signs are his blood pressure is 96 over 40. His heart rate is 118. His temperature is 37.1. His saturation on face mass O2 is 95%. 
His white blood cell count is 18, and he has delayed capillary refill. So, Jeremy, with just that information, what's your overall impression? Yeah, so right off the bat, any gunshot wound to the abdomen is usually not a good thing. Right away, worried about some potential spillage of bowel contents into the abdomen. And the fact that he has extreme abdominal tenderness, and now it's distended, that's really pointing to a a sepsis type of a situation. Now, his blood pressure right now is 96 over 40, which on the surface isn't bad, but when you combine that with a delayed capillary refill, that means he's not really getting perfusion in the periphery. So how are his organs being perfused? I don't know, but maybe not as well as they could be if, if perfusion is being diverted. And he has an elevated temperature at 37.1. Additionally, his white blood cell count is 18. So when you look at the history, when you look at the vital signs, when you put the whole picture together, certainly starting to look like a picture related to sepsis. Now, I'm going to tell you that this guy is coming to the operating room from the ICU on a vasopressor drip. He's receiving norepinephrine infusion for his blood pressure at 0.2 mics per kilo per minute. Yeah, and as we will discuss later in the management, that's a pretty typical vasopressor to use in someone who has sepsis with a, with a labile blood pressure. Now, in addition, he's also on antibiotic therapy. He's currently on combination therapy, which is superior to monotherapy. The antibiotic he's on is piperacillin and tazobactam, otherwise known as zosin. So this is a combination antibiotic that contains the extended spectrum penicillin antibiotic, piperacillin, and the beta-lactam inhibitor, tazobactam. This combination antibiotic has activity against many gram-positive, gram-negative, and anaerobic pathogens. All right, labs, what are you going to do? So as you mentioned, the most important thing someone developing sepsis is giving them antibiotics. Labs, what are we going to want? An ABG, H&H, electrolytes, glucose, especially if the patient is diabetic, coags, as people can develop DIC, uh, as sepsis is an independent uh, uh, causative agent of that. See what his renal function is, BUN, creatinine, and GFR liver function tests, something more specific related to inflammation is C-reactive protein, lactate levels, and any shock state to determine the severity. Now, there's a, dr- there's a lab, prolacetonin, which I looked up and I didn't really know much about. Um, and I'm guessing you don't get this back fa- quickly, but it is a lab that specifically IDs the offending agent, the specific bacteria. And they can use an antibiotic, maybe not broad spectrum, if the broad spectrum antibiotic doesn't uh, have an effect on the particular bacteria that's identified. Blood cultures for sure. And that would be prior to starting antibiotics. Other things that we would want, an EKG for sure, and also a chest x-ray. Okay, so that's our case. And pretty standard in terms of a sepsis patient. We've definitely got a mechanism of injury and now a potential for infection, which has turned into an infection. Let's talk pathophysiology regarding sepsis and septic shock because there is a difference. Sepsis occurs 
when both the infection and the body's immune response exceeds the local reaction and then becomes systemic uh, throughout the entire body system. Septic shock is differentiated when sepsis is severe enough to affect organ function. And it's most evident when there is a significant drop in blood pressure. So as soon as that blood pressure is affected, now we're moving into the septic shock state. Now, newer evidence has shown, it's showing that the immune dysfunction in sepsis has both hyperinflammatory and suppressive components. So you get an overaction of the immune system and a suppression of the immune system. And the timing of each, when they occur, it's not completely understood. In addition, sepsis also results in coagulopathies, both pro and anticoagulation types. Yeah, now let's talk about hemodynamics related to sepsis. And as you were mentioning earlier, Jeremy, about organ hypoperfusion. So what happens? We have significant vasodilation, and that's going to decrease perfusion to our organs. Organs don't get enough uh, oxygenation. They start to fail, and the the entire body starts to fail. As we had mentioned, this is a distributive shock state. The specific mechanism is that the bacterial endotoxin increase nitric oxide and cause vasodilation. Next, we have a decrease in the microcirculation from leaky capillaries, which results in reduced oxygen distribution. Also, people can develop edema. And then lastly, dysfunction of the mitochondria caused by altered amount of oxygen being delivered to those particular tissues eventually leading to anaerobic metabolism, lactic acidosis, cell death, tissue death, organ death, and death in general. How do you like that? Death. Yeah, I I don't even know how to respond to that, but that's a lot of death. Now, before we get to that point of of death, um, you're, you're talking about organ dysfunction. And here are some of the things that could possibly be occurring um, as a result of sepsis and septic shock. The kidneys are going to be affected, and you get a decreased perfusion to the kidneys. You can have acute kidney injury. You have very frequently with septic shock, a trigger for ARDS is sepsis and septic shock. So acute respiratory distress syndrome, uh, ARDS. Many of you have worked in the ICU taking care of patients with ARDS, and that can be a result of sepsis. Myocardial dysfunction can occur from hypoperfusion or myocarditis from infection. Other organs that can be affected, the brain, there can be an encephalopathy. The adrenal glands, can uh, there could be some type of adrenal gland insufficiency as a result of sepsis. And it, sepsis could affect the bowel. And now you get a gastrointestinal ileus. Now, with our patient, it's likely that the bowel was perforated from the gunshot wound and the spillage of the bowel contents into the peritoneum uh, likely led to the sepsis. As a CRNA, you spend years preparing yourself for this career, so we don't want to see you lose out on any of the income you've worked so hard to earn. The best way to protect yourself and give you the confidence that a major life event won't disrupt your financial future is through disability insurance. We've known disability income specialist Robert Smith for many years and have seen the work he's done with nearly 2,000 CRNAs over multiple decades. 
He can help identify any gaps in your existing coverage and fill those gaps by finding the best value on a policy. Contact Robert and let him know you heard about him on our podcast. Send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com. Or call him at 504-394-6557. Protect your greatest asset as a CRNA, yourself and your ability to earn a living by adding disability insurance to your financial plan. Let's look at signs and symptoms now. So let's break this into a little bit of a system symptoms and signs. So the patient may be altered. Certainly having a low blood pressure will do that. In terms of the respiratory system, he'd probably be tachypneic, uh, trying to compensate for his sepsis and acidosis, possibly hypercarbic, possibly hypoxic, and which would make matters much worse is that he has possibly developed, as Jeremy was talking about, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Yeah. And now if this patient comes to you and he's intubated, um, you'll probably see increased inspiratory pressures. Uh, Hopefully he's on some degree of PEEP to help minimize the atelectasis and the consolidation that's happening within the lungs. So we'll definitely have some some problems ventilating this patient, likely. Yeah. Yeah. So in any shock state, it's going to be a continuum from the beginning of the shock state until the end. Initially, the body is going to try to compensate. So in any shock state, other than neurogenic shock, which we've talked about, you'll see bradycardia. The compensatory mechanism is to increase blood pressure, to increase heart rate. And initially in septic shock, people will be warm and flushed. However, then they'll be, they'll start to decompensate if they're not treated because the body's compensatory mechanisms, they only have, you know, there's only so much that one can compensate before they decompensate. Decompensation would be hypotension, worsening tachycardia, and then cool and pale skin reflecting very, very significant vasoconstriction in the periphery. All right. Now, this uh, you, you talked about the compensatory part of septic shock and being warm and flushed. That seems pretty unique to this particular shock state. So I, in, the, in the other shock states, you know, we'll ha- we may have hypertension and tachycardia initially, but there'll be a decrease in peripheral perfusion. So they won't necessarily be warm and flushed. But in septic shock, we do see that. Yeah. Now let's bring it back to our scenario as we were talking initially. Um, and how would you categorize this patient? So if you remember, he was slightly hypotensive, but he was on a vasopressor. Remember he had decreased capillary refill and he also has an increased heart rate and it continues to increase. So Jeremy, how would you categorize this patient? Is he compensated or would you say he's decompensated? Well, with the scenario you just pointed out, this this seems like a decompensated form of septic shock. We need a vasopressor to keep his blood pressure up, and we have that delayed capillary refill, which means he's not circulating his volume very well. And here are some other signs and symptoms suggestive of sepsis and possibly even septic shock. Increased temperature, which he has, increased white blood cell count, uh, the beginning of DIC, metabolic acidosis, and of course, decrease urine output. All right, now let's get to the part that you all really want to hear, and that's the treatment. That's the management of septic shock. And much of the management 
in our crisis checklists are based on the 2021 Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommendations. Now, right off the bat, they're saying get these patients antibiotics. And we talked about our patient in the case scenario being on Zosin. And the Surviving Sepsis Campaign recommendations are get this antibiotic therapy to the patient within one hour of diagnosis. Now, the majority of broad-spectrum agents used for sepsis have activity against gram-positive organisms. And this includes Piptazo, the Zosin we talked about earlier, Ceftriaxone, Cefepime, Meropenem, and Primaxin. Vancomycin can be used. It's usually reserved for very serious drug-resistant gram-positive infections. All right, and then related to hemodynamics and what you want to try to achieve. So a map of greater than 65, and that's pretty much with most shock states. We had mentioned it's a little bit different or higher with neurogenic shock. We want to certainly get an arterial line so we can watch the blood pressure. They're going to need volume, right? It's, it's a distributive shock state. So 30 mil, the recommendations are 30 mils per kilogram within the first three hours of resuscitation. Now, this is in the guidelines. Avoid starches such as head of starch. Um, and you are aware that, or probably aware that it is uh, a risk factor for kidney injury and increases mortality related to kidney injury. We don't use that anymore, um, certainly in anesthesia, and I don't think they do either in the ICUs, but we thought we'd mention it just because it's still in the guidelines. Now, if you're given lots of crystalloids, you can consider using albumin. In terms of a vasopressor of choice, the vasopressor of choice for septic shock is norepinephrine. Norepinephrine infusion, the dose range is 0.1 to 0.5 mics per kilo per minute. You may consider adding in vasopressin if the initial infusion of norepinephrine is not working and not bringing you up to that target mean arterial pressure. Bacterial endotoxin actually also has an effect on adrenergic receptors, decreasing their responsiveness to catecholamines. And the third choice of a vasopressor, you can also consider adding in epinephrine. You can start vasopressors in a peripheral line until you get central venous access. And here is still on the guidelines you could consider giving hydrocortisone 200 milligrams if the blood pressure remains low after resuscitation. And there's all kinds of questions as to, you know, does this improve morbidity and mortality? And right now the science doesn't say definitively it does. The reason this may be effective is because people who are in septic shock can develop acute adrenal crisis. Today's show is brought to you by the folks at CRNA Financial Planning, an independent consulting firm that offers financial planning services exclusively to CRNAs and their families. From planning for a child's future college expenses to building a predictable income stream in retirement, the firm is committed to offering you comprehensive financial services customized to fit your unique needs and objectives. If you have questions about your financial future, get them answered. Call the team at 855-304-3748. That's 855-304-3748. Or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. 
All right, great. So now a few other things to consider in terms of management for a patient in septic shock, and especially our patient who's coming to us from the ICU. So odds are this patient's going to be intubated, and they're going to be providing lung protective ventilation. So that means lower tidal volumes, tidal volumes, five to six milliliters per kilogram. And with you're, you're watching your plateau pressures, keeping those less than 30 and adding some PEEP. So a PEEP of 5, 10, even up to 15 can be beneficial for these patients. We've talked about blood glucose. Very easy to miss in terms of a differential diagnosis in somebody who has hypotension. So we're always going to want to monitor blood glucose in a patient with sepsis and really any shock state. Now we may need to administer some insulin. We're looking to keep that blood glucose less than 180. So that's really the target that the guidelines are recommending, keeping the blood glucose less than 180. Now, the last consideration here is the fact that these patients are likely going to be on some kind of DVT prophylaxis. They may be on low molecular weight heparin. They may be just on heparin itself. So we're going to need to evaluate when that last dose was given. Now, if these patients with sepsis or septic shock come to you in the operating room, a couple things to think about. One, their blood pressure is going to be very light labile. And if they really are decompensating either with vape and especially on a vasopressor, even small amounts of anesthesia are going to further decrease their blood pressure. So you're going to have to accommodate for that. So that may mean giving very little anesthesia. We're going to need to give paralysis for this particular patient that we talked about earlier, who's coming in with a rigid abdomen, and they're going to have to do an exploratory laparotomy on him. Um, and just essentially letting the blood pressure guide your anesthetic. All right, Jeremy, so you mentioned the issue of not giving this patient a lot of anesthesia, and that causes heartburn in all of us anesthesia people because the last thing we will ever want to think about is the potential for recall. So are there some strategies that you could use really in any patient who's severely hypotensive and you're concerned about dropping their blood pressure further with the anesthesia? Anything that we could do to potentially decrease um, recall or having a patient being partially awake. Yeah, and that's that's a really good point you're bringing up, SAS, because no anesthesia provider wants their patient to have recall. And what are the patient populations that are more at risk for recall? Well, those who have low blood pressures or where their, their blood pressure is so low, you give any anesthesia, it's going to drop their pressure too much. So yes, there are some things we can do. We can add a little bit of Versed. That's an option, depending on their blood pressure, if it's stable enough. Bearing in mind that Versed will drop the blood pressure a little bit. Scopalamine, 0.2 milligrams IV is very helpful. That will allow some degree of the brain debris scrambled a bit. And here's another option. What about ketamine? Ketamine has some simple sympathomimetic capabilities as long as the patient has endogenous catecholamines still left in their system to be released. So that is also a potential option. All right, and so that does it for management of a patient and the recommendations from Surviving Sepsis Campaign for a patient in septic shock. Let's round this out by talking a little bit about differential diagnosis. So SAS, bring us back to our patient. What was this patient experiencing and what are some other things we should consider? 
Yeah. So everything here points us to the potential for sepsis and septic shock. Gunshot wound to the abdomen, hypotension on vasopressor, fever, decreased capillary refill, increased white blood cell count. The whole picture makes sense. However, in this in this state of hypotension, tachycardia, we always have to consider other shock states. Also, the potential for acute adrenal insufficiency as its own independent crisis for hypotension and tachycardia. Carcinoid syndrome, although rare, is a possibility. And then lastly, embolism. Well, that's a great one too, uh, embolism. Now, there are several types of embolism, so we can really zero that down, right, Sass? Yeah. So amniotic fluid embolism, not... A, Probably not for this guy. Not for this guy. That's exactly right. Um, cement embolism, is he having orthosurgery? Uh, yeah. Nope. It's abdominal surgery. CO2 gas embolism, is, he, is there a reason for that? They're not doing laparoscopic surgery. Venous yet. air embolism? No, nope, he's not getting his head operated on or anything. Uh, maybe a pulmonary embolism from a clot... Maybe in his leg that is now moved up. Yeah, that sounds like the most likely potential for embolism here is an actual clot. All right, fantastic. So that rounds it out. That finishes it up for septic shock and our distributive shocks with regards to talking about crisis checklists. As always, CRNAs, remember you can earn Class B credits for listening to Beyond the Mask podcast. And... Please, if you like what you heard and you think it could help others learn, please consider leaving us a five-star review and writing a review because it allows us to improve. Let us know what you want to hear about. And also, talk about this to your friends. This is the way we grow and it's the way we continue to inform the public on things that are really important in terms of anesthesia management. All right, everyone. CRNA Nation. That is it for this episode on septic shock. Remember, keep ventilating, and we'll catch you on the next episode. Have you thought about what would happen if you weren't able to work for two or three years? You know, on average, 25% of people will file a disability claim and most of us aren't prepared for that loss of income. Every CRNA needs to protect their biggest asset, yourself and your ability to earn with a disability insurance policy. We recommend contacting Robert Smith, a master disability insurance specialist with more than 30 years of experience and 1,800 CRNA clients to find the coverage that fits you best. The best way to do that is to send him an email at rsmithjr at financialguide.com. That's rsmithjr at financialguide.com or call him at 504-394-6557. Beyond the Mask is made possible by the team at CRNA Financial Planning. With almost two decades of experience, the firm guides CRNAs through the complexities of investing and financial planning. Schedule a free consultation today by calling 855-304-3748 or go online to crnafinancialplanning.com. 
Hi, this is Jackie Rolls, President of the International Federation of Nurse Anesthetists and President and Founder of Our Hearts, Your Hands, a global anesthesia support community that takes donations to allow nurse anesthetists in low and middle income countries to go to educational programs, buy equipment, or textbooks. Your donations are tax deductible, and we would appreciate your support. OSA EMR is a free anesthesia EMR developed by CRNAs that you can download and use on an iPad. Our nonprofit mission is to make sure that solo and small practice CRNAs can digitally record their anesthetics. To learn more, visit OSAEMR.com to download and consider donating to our cause. Remember, for CRNAs, data is destiny. Be sure to subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and anywhere you like to listen to shows. Also, be sure to check out beyondthemaskpodcast.com. Each episode is posted there with a corresponding blog post, and we timestamp important parts of the episode to help you quickly get to the content you're looking for. Also, check out the special series section on the site. You can follow along and catch up on the CRNA History Series, episodes specifically about political conversations in the industry, or try the CRNA Personal Finance Series. It's all on beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And if you have a question for the show or want to be a guest or even suggest a particular topic, fill out the contact form on the site or send an email directly to us at info at beyondthemaskpodcast.com. And lastly, let's take the conversation social. Check out our Beyond the Mask podcast Facebook page and Facebook group. Jeremy and Sass expressly disclaim any liability in connection with the use of this presentation or its contents by any third party.